Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. I am Jason Kebler. Thank you very much to Brian Anderson, Adrian Jeffries, and Brian Merchant for holding down the fort while I was gone. Um, I was in Cuba the last three weeks, which was very fun. I was reporting on um, internet access issues, and um, this guy makes an illegal magazine there, and I was kind of just traipsing around the country looking for stories and i found some and they're on our website which is motherboard.vice.com and you should check them out um we are going to be talking to jose luis martinez who is a communications director at the miami-based foundation for human rights in cuba Uh, he has been kind of studying the cuban government's uh, interactions with its people and kind of the propaganda they have there and that sort of thing and one thing i was very much surprised by was how very communist Cuba still is. I don't know why I expected it to be a little bit more open, but you kind of hear how it's changed in recent years and with, you know, the reestablishing of diplomatic relations. Um, everyone kind of expects Cuba to be like this land of mojitos and beaches and old cars. But you get there and there's propaganda everywhere. There are There's a billboard. Were there old cars too? Oh, I'm here with Brian Merchant and Jamie Sanchez, by the way, hey. who are joining us. Hi, guys. Thank you for being here. I'm going to talk a little bit more, and then you can talk. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There is a billboard in the middle of Havana that is just a noose, and it says the embargo is the longest genocide in human history, which is quite a statement. Um, I don't know if a lot of people would agree with that, but I certainly wouldn't. Uh, So I was wondering... um, if you go to Cuba just to smoke the cigars and uh, play on the beaches and drink mojitos and dance, are you a jerk for like supporting a regime that has repress- repressed its people for the last 70 or so years? Um, do you guys have any thoughts on this? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, um, I guess... In my opinion, you are a bit of a jerk, but I think that kind of tourism is probably going to be the lead catalyst in changing that regime. So I think once people can go into that country, see it and or capitalize off it one way or another, 
it's going to eventually, I think, alter the way the government can manipulate the people. And I think if you let new people into a country, you can start to change the perspective of its citizens. So, like, without... They're not being flooded by new information or by new thoughts or expression. Even if it is tourism, they're eventually, we're eventually going to be building things there. Um, and I think that is, like, a, a way for the citizens of Cuba to kind of be exposed, maybe, to, like, new cultures and new ideas, which might then... I don't know. Have them change their minds about being communists. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I would argue that you're n not really. I mean, is I, I? I'm gonna like betray my ignorance of modern Cuban history right now because I don't like. I mean, how how bad is it right now? How like how bad? What kind of oppression are we talking about? I mean, there are a lot of like nice things about Cuba too, with with, with cheap universal health care and like sort of more equality than you see in the states. And anytime you go to any regime that has you know enough, uh, you know power uh, and a organized enough government. I mean, you know, by visiting the United States, are like the tax revenues that you generate, like buying tickets to the Empire State Building and the taxes and the proceeds going to like fund a drone campaign to kill some folks in Yemen. Like, I don't know, like but everybody has a blemish. On do you think like a country that not a single home has internet access feels a little... It's retrograde for sure, but I think by visiting that country you're not you know if anything like you said you're you're sort of like opening up the channel of communication if by going there you know your tourist bucks were going into a slush fund of like keep cuba off the grid or keep cuba you know unplugged then maybe it would be bad but i don't i'm not aware of any of those current policies now and i can't really see any real distinct connection between going to Cuba and further perpetuating, you know, active terribleness. I don't know. Right. So, I mean, everything is still totally controlled by the Cuban government there. There are very few private businesses. So in theory, you are paying directly into these slush funds. Um, right. And it, yeah, yeah it no, is... I'm curious, like, what did, what did you see there? What were the most worrisome things that you, like, that you saw and you were like, holy shit, besides, like, the propaganda, which is obviously shitty. Right, yeah, so Jose Luis is going to tell us some specifics about what the Cuban government has done to its people and kind of some of the bad things that are going on there. But he mentions that they are very good at doing kind of a worldwide PR campaign. Um, they just opened up 35 Wi-Fi hotspots for their people, um, which is nothing. It's a nation of 11 million people, and it's, you know, like opening 35 hotspots in Manhattan <laughs> would, like, it's ridiculous. And it's a very large country. I mean, it took me, like, 24 hours to drive across it, um, mostly because I got lost a lot because there's no GPS. But <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um but, yeah, you know, they can install these hotspots and say, look, we gave our people the Internet. We have the Internet now. We are, like, opening up and that sort of thing. But at the in the same, like, at the same time, they're kind of surveilling their people and they are censoring and they just put a graffiti artist in jail and they kind of won't tell him why. And, you know, people still do get arrested for, like, speaking out against the government. They're still these like communist clubs where if you join them, you kind of get perks. And if you inform on your neighbors, you get perks uh, for being like pro-revolutionary. And if you're like kind of anti-revolutionary, you're not. 
really a good Cuban, I guess. So revolutionary it is, being a catch-all term for in support of the of a supposedly of the Castro regime. regime. Yeah. Um, I feel this but, way about this conversation, kind of how I feel about like gentrification. It's almost as if like, are you part of the problem or part of a weird solution? You know what right. I mean? Like, I think with time, it kind of ends up. It's like it's just difficult. It's hard to really kind of assess it. I think in its beginning stages, because you just never know right. what's going to happen. I think there's no answer to this question, it's like a real like one. A, and I th- yeah, it's yeah. also a really, really old question. You know, yeah. it's like a, as long as there have been nasty regimes in cool places that people want to visit. I think about. I went to um, Myanmar maybe five years ago before it had its quote-unquote elections and and its sort of steps towards democracy which are still kind of a joke but i you know the same questions were everybody was at least raising that questions to feel like if you thought about it you could feel better a little bit by because you you still go if you want to go you know you went like i want to go i've always wanted to go yeah yeah and i mean i was reporting I guess. I mean, I, I was reporting, but that was an excuse in some sense to go to Cuba, which I've always wanted to do. Um, and I have family. Well, you're also Cuban. Yeah. I mean, my grandfather's Cuban, so I really wanted to see where he grew up. And I was very surprised when I got to his hometown that, like, no one recognized me, which was very weird. I don't know why I expected, like, to recognize this place I've never been and that he left, you know, when he was 10 years old. But I was just like, oh. This is, like, sort of my homeland, and I don't know anything about this small town. It's, like, very weird. (laughs) Anyways, um, Jamie made a really good point about kind of, like, opening the eyes of people. Um, They have this thing there called the Paquete, which is a USB drive full of, like, uh, movies and TV shows and magazines and books and, like, YouTube videos that comes from Miami every week. It's smuggled in uh, by you know, either Cubans or tourists, probably Cuban Americans, I'm not sure, because um, no one really knows exactly who does it. But these are yeah, the internet, de- internet dealers you were talking about? Or are these like the sort of more da- data dealers? These are data dealers. It's like a replacement for the internet, sort of. Um, right. And so people are like up to date on like the newest HBO shows because it comes every week and you can then buy this uh, hard drive worth of information from basically any store with a computer. Um, And it's kind of like this, like information gets in some way or another. Like I gave a bunch of Drake songs to this Cuban that I met there and like he got sunglasses from like an American he met before and he like learned about he knew a bunch of rap stuff from people he had met, you know, basically by being a hustler in Cuba. And I think Jamie raised a really good point that information gets in just by people visiting and that sort of thing. So I think it's probably uh, yeah. a net positive to visit. Uh, but yeah, that it's there's not like really an answer. I mean, I think, think about it. If tourism like grows, right, and there's a huge influx of tourists, and they don't have internet access or access to Wi-Fi or can access their data, like it's only a matter of time before those things become far more available. So I'm um, like I said, it could be like a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think that I think Cuba's in more jeopardy of losing their cultural aspects that maybe they've tried to maintain, mm. as opposed to you know the the regime i don't really know i feel like they're already having a lax their government is a little more lax than it's ever been they wouldn't have lifted the embargo you know what i mean so i think that this is maybe the first step in 
possibly changing all that. Right, right. So they still, the embargo is like U.S. imposed and it's, we still have an embargo. So you can't like go there and start a business. Um, It's like yet. Um, The Cuban government wants more foreign investment, but at the same time, they are very protective of their culture and they still are very much into communism. So I don't think that, like, the people who say that there's going to be a McDonald's there tomorrow, like, they have to go right now before Cuba's ruined, I don't think that that's, like, truly a threat yet because they're going to be very careful about who is allowed to open a business and where and under what circumstances and that sort of thing. So I think it's not going to happen right away, but it it probably is going to happen. Um, Yeah. But anyways, before I just, like, talk about my trip forever, let's talk to (laughs) Jose Luis, who is a very smart guy and has been studying this in far more detail than probably anyone outside of Cuba, maybe anyone inside of Cuba. So let's talk to him real quick, and then we are going to talk to Jamie about a massive fuck-up she did today. And we're going to analyze it. So let's do that. Sure, my name is Jose Luis Martinez and I am the Director of Communications at the Foundation for Human Rights in Cuba. And uh, you guys are working very hard to get Cuba connected, correct? Uh, That's true, yeah. We actually have a campaign right now called Connect Cuba, uh, whose mission is to create a lot of advocacy for empowering Cuban civil society with uncensored access to the internet on the island. Right, and that seems to be the big thing right now. It's there is internet access on the island. There's not very much of it, but um, all of it is through Atexa, which is a Cuban government company, and it's all censored. It's monitored and that sort of thing. So, uh, are you hoping for like private companies to come into Cuba and and you know start their own internet services or what? Yeah, I'll. Obviously, you know, we, we would love to see uh, more open and uncensored access to Internet on the island. And, uh, you know, getting Internet and technology in general just out of the direct hands of the Cuban government. As you mentioned, Texa is a state-run government monopoly that runs all telecommunications on the island. Uh, and therefore, it is heavily censored and heavily monitored uh, and still quite limited, uh, especially by our standards. Um, so it would be great to see outside companies that are able to come in uh, and offer, you know, much freer, much faster and, and hopefully much, much less expensive internet to the Cuban people. Right. So uh, is there any hope at this point? I mean, are we seeing any sort of signs that the Cuban government might be open to this? Because it's not going to happen without their approval more or less right of course yeah unfortunately especially during the last eight months since the u.s decided uh, decided to open diplomatic relations with cuba we have not really seen much of a change on the cuban government side in terms of their willingness to explore uh, outside companies especially tech firms to come in uh, and help amplify internet and technology on the island they, they seem very reticent uh, and still you know have a very old school Uh, dare I say, communist or totalitarian approach to all of this, which is where they do want to keep their hands on all the controls, on all the buttons and knobs, and make sure they know exactly what type of information flows in and out of the island. 
Right. It's important to note, uh, I mean, I fell into this trap as well when the U.S. announced they were reopening, uh, you know, diplomatic relations. You think McDonald's is going to come in there like Comcast and all these American companies are just going to flood into Cuba and overrun the island, basically. And, um, and that's probably not the case because it's obviously not just the U.S. that's been kind of, I don't know, shunning Cuba. It's also... Cuba wants tight control over what's there. So it kind of takes two to play this game, right? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we've always said, and we've been saying this for, for a long time, is that, you know, the relationship that really needs to change is not that between two governments, i.e. the U.S. and Cuba. It's it's really, uh, we feel the most important relationship is that between the Cuban government and its own people. Uh, and unfortunately, that hasn't changed, and it doesn't look likely to change anytime soon. Uh, so... At this point, the the main entity that stands to gain from these new relationships, from uh, you know perhaps new businesses, more tourism from the U.S. to Cuba, is really mainly the Cuban government and not necessarily the Cuban people. Right. So, what what is the? I mean, I saw when I went there what the internet situation is like right now. Um, you know, you have these Wi-Fi hotspots set up. A um, couple in Havana, a couple in some of the larger towns like uh, Camagüey and Vinales and some of the touristy areas. Um, mm. Why is it? Th- why is it this way? Like you, you look at China and they have had internet access, albeit very censored internet access for a very long time. Um, but Cuba, there's like nothing. There's been no internet access for a very long time, or extremely limited internet access. Right. Uh, you know, it's, I think, unfortunately, a lot of it is about power and control. And, and I know, uh, you know, if, if you look around the island, everything is government propaganda, you know, from billboards to newspapers. You go to a newsstand in Havana and you don't see, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Miami Herald. You really just see, uh, you know, two or three newspapers that, that are all completely run by Cuba's Communist Party, which is the only party that's allowed in Cuba. Not only do they run the government, but they run all media as well in and out of that country. Uh, So really what the Cuban government wants is for the people to only see, interpret, understand, and repeat their perspective and their point of view uh, of the world. And and it's it is kind of unique, you know. Like I said, even compared to to other uh, relatively close societies like China, uh, that Cuba, you know, is even more uh, uh, stringent in terms of what access to outside information they allow their own people to have. Right, and I think a lot of people, when they think of closed societies, they probably think of North Korea and you know maybe Cuba, but Cuba doesn't come to mind like quite as quickly. I think. Um, do you have any sense as to why that might be? Like, I, I think that there's not this immediate sort of revulsion to the Cuban government, where, whereas there is with a place like North Korea um, that seems like a little bit more foreign, maybe, and a little bit, you know, you, you know things are dire in North Korea, but you don't really think of them as potentially being quite as dire in Cuba. Um, should we think of it differently? Sure. And and unfortunately, a lot of that is in the optics. You know, you just look at North Korea and the landscape there and just kind of feels dark and cold and distant. And plus the fact that it is so far away from the U.S., uh, you know, naturally it lends itself to sort of this, you know, dark, closed society, whereas Cuba gives off the optics 
especially internationally, uh, as this beautiful Caribbean island uh, that's so natural and pristine and the people are all warm and friendly and there's beaches and there's rum and there's cigars and there's all these this amazing music that comes out of Cuba. Uh, so from, you know, from, from a visual standpoint or just from you know, a sensory standpoint, it seems like this beautiful paradise that, Cuba, that Americans have just been disconnected from for so many years. Uh, for political reasons, but you know, I think when you start to dig deeper, you'll see that you know, um, uh, Cuba is actually a lot closer to North Korea than it is to the United States um, in terms of the ideology, in terms of how the government wants to have strict control over everything in their country, even in terms of harassment and oppression. You know, um, it, there, there's there's still several political prisoners in the island of Cuba that, that are kept in very poor conditions and all this for trying to express themselves uh, themselves freely. Uh, and, and all this is happening right now in Cuba, but I think they're just able to hide it a lot better than a country like North Korea, for example. And, and in terms of hiding, uh, you know, a story broke a while back that um, Cuba was actually secretly sending, um, you know, these old uh, uh, Soviet-style MiGs and, and airplanes and, and military equipment to North Korea, and it was hidden in a in a shipping container under tons of sugar, and that was, uh, that was they were trying to pass it through the Panama Canal. So you know they're they're definitely traditionally a lot friendlier with the North Korean government and and their way of operating than they are with the U.S. government and how we do things over here. Right, right. I was actually surprised, you know, when I went. I, I don't. I didn't go in with a lot of expectations because I wanted to keep an open mind. But I was surprised with how overt the propaganda is and how it's everywhere, you know? Like, at the bus stations, the books that they sell are almost mm-hmm. all about the blockade, uh, the bloqueo, as they call it. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, there is a there's a billboard in the middle of Havana that is just a noose, and it says, you know, the blockade is the worst genocide in the history of mankind, which is a very strong statement. Um, and you know you you drive down the the roads and you don't see advertisements for anything. You just see propaganda. Every single billboard is propaganda. It's not obviously there's very few private companies there, so I don't know what they'd be advertising for. But right. uh, it's all kind of advertising for the government and for the revolution and anti-America and you know kind of anti-capitalist sort of things. Um, mm. I don't know why I expected it to be so overt, but uh, you know I guess it, it makes sense. Yeah, and, and I think it's, again, because uh, the Cuban government is so adept at selling their image internationally and even, you know, in American media and, and what we see and we hear is a lot different than what actually goes on internally. So unless, you know, you're very well versed and educated, you know, or maybe you're a Cuban American and you understand from your personal family stories and their history what Cuba's really like, it, that's when your eyes really start to open. Uh, and, and I'm glad that you were able to see that other perspective, uh, you know, when you went to the island. Uh, but it's, you know, and, and, and unfortunately it just goes back to the fact that, you know, it's, even though we have these new relationships now, it's the same government, it's the same family, the Castro family and their friends and their close allies that are running that country. And, and they're doing it in a very specific way. And, and again, unfortunately, we haven't seen that any of that has changed or evolved, you know, even within the last year or so. Uh, so and and I don't know when and if it will, it, you know, considering that the same uh, small uh, elite group in Cuba is gonna is gonna stay in control, you know, for the foreseeable future, um, you know. But we, we're still hopeful. 
we're so hopeful that um, you know Cuba civil society will continue to grow and evolve, and that they're going to eventually you know uh, take hopefully take the country back into their own hands uh, and, and ideally see some sort of democratic form of government where you do have outside information where all the billboards are not just government propaganda uh, where you can see you know plurality in the country and, and different points of view that are allowed to be expressed freely uh, without fear of harassment, oppression, arrest, exile or worse. Right. Have things gotten better in recent years, I guess, especially after Raul has taken over? Or, I mean, are we seeing a more move to the moderate, or is that optics as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of these are, you know, what we sort of call these cosmetic changes uh, that kind of look good from 5,000 feet, but when you look closer, uh, it's not it's not, not quite as, as lovely uh, or as interesting, and, and it, and it kind of changes on you. But so, you know, even for example, the, the opening of these 35 Wi-Fi hotspots, um, you know, it's not just in Havana. This is spread around the entire country, and, and again, you're talking about a country of 11 million people. Uh, so what kind of an impact or a den are 35 Wi-Fi hotspots? going to make um, other than showing the world hey look we have Wi-Fi now we're opening up so the illusion is that Cuba is getting more and more internet and that they're respect of that change and then you look at the economy uh, you know something that Raul uh, decided that he wanted to open up was these sort of small private businesses that in Cuba they referred to as cuenta propistas um, which loosely translates to they're on their own um, and they, it's about 200 or so businesses that Q, the Cuban government legally allowed for Cubans to open. But, you know, they're, they're basically everything from shining shoes, refilling lighters, you know, having a dog grooming salon on your front porch, um, but nothing bigger than that. And, you know, you're not allowed to advertise or franchise in, in a way that you would, you know, with, with a business here in the U.S. Right, right. I was actually, I was pretty surprised uh, talking to the owner of, a casa particular that I stayed at, which is basically hmm. um, a place. There's not a lot of hotels in Cuba, and almost all of them are owned by the government. I think a couple of them are owned by foreign companies, but um, you can stay with people with like people in their house, kind of like Airbnb style. And she was telling me that the price is set by the government. Um, you know, you have to. They have to sign every single person who stays there they have to like vouch for them and uh, someone from the government comes by every couple days and checks how popular it is and if they're too popular then they are required to raise the price and then the taxes go up with it obviously so um, you know they try as best they can to keep everything exactly equal no matter what is going on um, mm. which just seems kind of it's, it's not a business it's, it's just an extension of the government in, in a sense I thought but you know I'm not sure right no that's exactly right so you know even even these small mom-and-pop businesses whether it's uh, a casa particular or you know whether it's you know again these these small fruit vendors on the street everything is is tightly watched and still controlled by the government and, and unfortunately you know if you're a young entrepreneur and and you know you want to be aggressive and you want to grow uh, uh, in Cuba it's very difficult because the government will just only let you go so far uh, and again if they see you being too successful uh, unfortunately in Cuba you don't get rewarded for it you actually get punished for it in many ways whether it's higher taxes 
whether it's, you know, they decide, okay, you know, you can open one Casa Particular, but you can't open two, um, and you can't franchise the name. There's, you know, even this whole idea of intellectual property in Cuba is basically non-existent. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to start the Cuban version of Starbucks and you come up with a cool name and you want to license that and you want to grow it, not only in Havana, but in other provinces, you're technically not even allowed to do that. Right, right. So let's talk about this reestablishment of diplomatic relations. Um, a lot of Americans are very excited about it. They're thinking, you know, we'll get to go visit Cuba soon. Um, a lot of people want to go visit it before it gets too Americanized, which I don't know, that makes sense on a lot of levels, but uh, should, I mean, should Americans be excited about this or is, I mean, by going to visit the country, are you benefiting, you know, this repressive government? Is it, is it okay to go visit Cuba in, in your guys' eyes? Um, what, what, where do you come down there? Right. I mean, I think it's it's a de definitely an interesting question, and it's one that you know, uh, it's it maybe it's still a little bit too early to tell. And and I think these negotiations, these relationships between these two countries, is probably going to be a long drawn out process. Uh, but yeah, in in the meantime, in terms of traveling to Cuba, uh, I think you know we would prefer that if if as an American you are going to go to Cuba, you go more you know. Uh, really to just explore and understand how local Cubans are living and not just to, you know, go to one of these all-inclusive resorts uh, that literally only benefit the government because they're all owned by the Cuban military. These these big, whatever few big fancy hotels in Cuba exist uh, or these all-inclusive resorts or the touristic spots uh, that are very popular, those are all completely owned and operated by the Cuban military, basically. So you're, you're directly feeding into their, into their hands. But if you decide to uh, stay at a casa particular, uh, or you know, if you decide to just go and really uh, engage with local Cubans, uh, then you know you you may come back with a much different perspective and whatever knowledge you can share with a local Cuban uh, as to how you know business is done, how people are educated, what access you have to information and technology here in the states. You know that information may be useful to the local population, um, and and so that that potentially could be you know a useful thing for a Cuba civil society. Right, right. Um, I before I left, I did a bit of research. I try not to do too much because I don't want to be like totally influenced by what I read online. But um, uh, a lot of right. people said you know don't expect Cubans to be very open and don't expect them to talk about politics because you know they're still it's still dangerous for a lot of Cubans to speak out against the government and that sort of thing. But I found that almost everyone wanted to talk about politics and almost everyone within a couple minutes of talking to them would say, oh, I don't want to talk about politics, but... And then they would kind of go in and, and talk about politics. And I, I found, you know, I don't want to necessarily say brainwashed, but, uh, you know, a few of the people were extremely, extremely pro-Castro, whereas others were very anti-Castro and... Um, I did find that people really did want to talk about it. Um, is that is that something that you mm. have experienced as well? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, in our work, we actually work with a lot of uh, specifically human rights activists, what I guess you would consider also uh, dissidents or the Cuba's opposition, which are all very strongly against uh, the Cuban regime and how they've been running the country for, for over half a century. Uh, but, you know, we're starting to see that that kind of mindset is is starting to expand beyond uh, this this group of, of determined activists who want to see change and they want to see it quickly. Uh, and, and I think the average Cuban is is just learning more about the world and they're seeing that, you know, they're, they're so disconnected and isolated and, and there's just this common sense of frustration. And I think you see it in, in, in the, another unfortunate fact, which is um, so many Cubans that are still desperately trying to leave Cuba. Uh, and 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 that's I think that's a red flag right there when you see thousands and thousands of Cuba that are, uh, Cubans that are willing to risk their life on the open seas in these makeshift rafts uh, to get to the U.S. or you know to put their life in the hands of mules in Latin America and try to get their way through 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 the border of Mexico just to get to the U.S. Uh, that there is you know something's just not right there and and they're just not happy uh, so. I believe that you know you're you're spot on when when I think the majority of Cubans are very dissatisfied with how their country is being run and and yes there is fear in speaking about it openly but I think more and more Cubans now are finding it uh, a little easier uh, to talk about things because I just think the level of frustration has has become so common and widespread on the island. Right. Do you think any of that is related to the opening of the internet? Obviously. Uh, you know, more and more information is coming in. Cubans have been getting information for a long time through the paquete, which is a flash drive or hard drive that comes in from Miami, presumably, uh, every Tuesday. Uh, and makes its way throughout the island and is, you know, traded on USB drives and contains a lot of, you know, foreign information and videos and, you know, music and news as well. So, I mean, is it is it as, do you think it's as a result of you know, more and more information getting into Cuba about how things are in other places. Um, sure, it's definitely possible. Yeah, the, the paquete has been wildly popular in Cuba for, for a while now, mainly due to the fact that, you know, uh, you're not allowed to have uh, any sort of satellite or international cable connection in your house, you know. So this is this paquete or this combo that you're talking about is really like an offline Comcast or DirecTV uh, that allows them to see certain content from the outside uh, because they just don't have access to it internally. And, and that has been made making its way around Cuba for, for several years now. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I think that combine, combined with the fact that the Cubans that have left the island, that have started fresh in the U.S. or in Europe or in other parts of the world, you know, they do communicate by whatever means with the family back home. And they tell them, look, this is how life is here in Miami or in New York or, you know, in, even in Spain or the U.K., wherever they end up. And, and so Cubans, obviously, uh, the ones that are still on the island, they, they want to be a part of that. And so their, their eyes and their minds and their hearts are opening to a different way of life. And I think that has a very powerful effect, particularly on the younger generations, um, you know, especially those that uh, if you are a younger generation, you know, you, this idea of social media that's still so new to them. I mean, it's still relatively new to us, but it's super new to the Cuban population. Um, you know, uh, uh, blogging, expressing yourself 
stuff. You know, now instead of reading instruction manuals, we're used to going on YouTube and figuring out how to put things together or how to solve a problem. Uh, and that's something that the Cubans haven't had. And even if they get a small little piece of that, even if it's in one of these paquetes, it's a huge deal. And they're wondering now more and more, why can't I have access to this when and where I want it? Right, right. Uh, yeah, and uh, you, you know, you mentioned the rafts uh, a few minutes ago and defectors. A lot of people still want to defect. And I was speaking to a person in Trinidad, which is in the south of uh, Cuba, and he asked where I was from, and I said the United States, and uh, you know, he said, "Oh, like Miami," and I said, "No, you know, it's but you know, Miami is only ninety miles away. It's not so far." And he he just said, "It's a it's a long way in a raft," and that really. <laughs> I felt bad that I said it was close because it's, that's a really good point and, um, you know, it, it really kind of hit home for me and it is a very good point. It's for such a long time and still to this day, it's doesn't matter how far it is. It's just not accessible. Uh, leaving is not accessible for a lot of Cubans. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely right, it, and it's it is unfortunate. Like uh, Cuba is so close yet so far away in many ways. Right, right. Um, so I also met with uh, Henry Constantine um, there, who you you set me up with, who is an activist pushing for uh, you know better internet connections, but he also runs an illegal uh, literary magazine and journalist magazine that is published every. Uh, two months, and I was very surprised and impressed at the fact that he's publishing this magazine with his own name, and he's been very outspoken against against the Cuban government in Cuba. Um, are you surprised that he hasn't run into like more trouble with uh, the government there? Um, these people uh, who who are speaking out, it seems as though you know maybe they are running into hardships, but they are not being jailed anymore. Hopefully. Right. Um, well, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the jail sentences are still very real. Uh, and actually, one of Henry's colleagues, Danilo Maldonado Machado, who's a graffiti artist in Havana, uh, who was attempting a, a, an artistic expression back in December of this year, just after the announcement was made, he's actually been sitting in a jail cell since December uh, on a charge of what they call desacato, which means basically disrespect of the government. Uh, and he hasn't been tried. And, and to this day, we're talking about eight months later, he hasn't been released. So that danger uh, uh, of being arrested, you know, for an indeterminate amount of time is still very real uh, for, for young folks like Danilo or like Henry. Uh, they run the risk because they feel like there's no other way for them to change their country. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Country uh, than to be this outspoken and take that risk. Um, so, but it's it's interesting how the rules and the laws and by the Cuban government are not applied uniformly across the island. So, you know, oftentimes they may let one person get away with something, but not someone else, and it it seems almost random. 
and, and I think that's also the case with these short-term detentions. Sometimes they'll pinch you, sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll let you publish something, sometimes they won't. Just like when you go to the Wi-Fi hotspot. Sometimes they'll let you view a certain website, other days they'll block it. Um, so it's almost like they, they're playing these mind games with the Cuban people. Like saying, well, we may not catch you for this tomorrow, but we know what we're doing, and, and maybe one day we will lay the hammer down on you. So just be careful. Uh, and I think that's the message that continued, continues to be conveyed, yeah. Right. It seems almost like a strategy, um, as you mentioned, and it seems as though it's a way to get people to, to speak out so the Cuban government knows who its enemies are, almost. Like, oh, you know, we'll let them get away with this for a little while, uh, and then, you know, maybe down the line they come after them, maybe they don't. And this sort of sense of uncertainty could be, you know, it, it, uncertainty is very scary for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, Henry's a very brave person. It, it, it was just really impressive to see him publishing this magazine and speaking out and um, know, like knowing the history of Cuba and its present as well with, you know, political opposition. So... Um, it, it must be very hard to be someone like him. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And, and, and again, he definitely rose that risk. And the fact that in Cuba, you think about it, you even called it a, an illegal magazine. Imagine here in the United States, if that were the case, if a young indie magazine all of a sudden were just deemed illegal or a contraband even. And all this guy's doing is try to write articles. Imagine if that happened in the early days of Vice in the U.S. And all of a sudden the government just said, look, we don't like what you're writing here. We're just going to shut it down and we're going to throw all the writers in jail or force them into exile. Um, you know, and that's still very much a, a possibility in Cuba even today. Right. And uh, yeah, I say illegal magazine and it's not like this guy is publishing like bomb recipes or anything. It's like articles about reggaeton and like how to access the internet and poetry. And it's utterly innocuous stuff if it were to be published in the United States, but it's extremely, uh, I don't want to say controversial. It's extremely, you know, dangerous for him to publish what he's publishing because it's not approved by the Cuban government. And it was really interesting to go into bookstores and see what's for sale there because you see very little from foreign authors. You see very little from Cuban authors who are in exile. Um, maybe none. I don't know if I saw any books but written by Cubans from abroad who have said anything bad about the government. So uh, the access to information there is just uh, very tightly controlled. I, I think all, all, all your observations are, are really spot on, and, I, and I'm glad you were, you were able to see all that firsthand because it's true. It's almost like you know, once you do become a Cuban exile, or you know, you go overseas, and especially if if you're in any way, shape, or form critical of the government, you know, you're you're almost. Uh, you're, you're invisible to the Cuban government and they don't want you to publish any books on the island. They don't want to see any, you know, play any of your music there, uh, whether you're a music artist, whatever it is, uh, it's almost like you don't exist for them anymore. Uh, and it's unfortunate because, you know, there are so many, many talented uh, Cuban American and Cuban exile writers uh, and musicians, you know, even the great Celia Cruz, uh, who was exiled so long ago, she was never able to go back to her to her motherland and perform for her own people. And we see how amazingly talented she was and how she was able to go all over the world and millions and millions of people uh, fell in love with her and her music. And she was never able to go during her entire lifetime until she died unfortunately and and, and never, she was never able to even return to Cuba 
right right and this is a totally different you know space but it seems like the same thing is almost happening with baseball right now i was i'm a big baseball fan and i was talking to people there about it and they say that interest in the cuban leagues there has really diminished as more and more people defect uh and part of that is because the government isn't pushing the cuban leagues as much anymore because once someone defects it's like they never played there they never existed um you know you there there is major league games there you that you can see in maybe like a hotel but it's often uh delayed and it's often it's not accessible to the average cuban so you know uh you know say yasiel big leaves and you don't really ever hear about how he's doing in the majors and uh it's just a it's weird these people are almost as though it's almost as though they've disappeared yeah it's like you know the, the minute you it, there's an old saying with the cuban regime is that for the revolution everything against the revolution nothing so you know the minute you're a talented cuban baseball player and you decide uh you know to go play in the united states it's almost like you're one of them now you're 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 counter-revolutionary you didn't stay within the system how dare you go to the u.s and become an mlb star and become wildly successful uh and and financially well off you know that's that's counter-revolutionary how could you do that uh, and then it's like again at that point you basically no longer exist for them um, and and you know this has been going on for a long time there's even you know major league hall of famers now that haven't been able to go back home and see their homeland and uh, again these are talented individuals who are now beloved all around the world including the US but have almost no presence in Cuba whatsoever right right you, you compare that to something like you know the Japanese players or Taiwanese players who come to uh the major leagues and they're revered in their homeland and you know the people become fans of whatever team they play on and uh you know the expat community in the u.s follows them around and that sort of thing and it's it's not like that at all uh with, with cuba at least from what i can tell no yeah it's unfortunate it's like yeah the, the only ones that really kind of can say that and feel that sense of pride are really uh, other cuban exiles and cuban americans in this country that are able to follow them and their teams and see how they're doing uh you know and obviously you see that in, in miami a lot uh where we down here uh, love to follow the, the cuban stars once they come here um you know whether it was at duke hernandez with the yankees or you know some of the young ones now like like puig who are doing such amazing things in in major league baseball but then their fan base no longer unfortunately becomes the cuban people it's actually the cuban exiles and the cuban americans uh, along with you know regular Americans who follow them because you know they they are so talented, right, right. Um, a lot of people in Cuba will argue, you know, th I guess the pro-revolutionary people will argue about Cuba's, you know, extremely high literacy rates and their medical system and the fact that they have kind of stamped out HIV and all these other things, and they are not totally wrong when they say that. So I, I, it's just it's very difficult to kind of like reconcile how how such a thing exists when human rights have been trampled you know so extensively and it almost seems as though those are like an outcome of the uh of some of these human rights violations especially things like low disease rates it seems like they get those by heavily monitoring their people in a way that would not fly in most democratic countries so uh, I just am wondering if there is, if there are lessons that we can learn from 
the Cuban government and how they've done things without taking all the bad that has come with it and whether there are things that they can learn from us without completely ruining whatever good things they have built there, which, you know, there are a few. Right. No, of course. Uh, and, and that's, that's again, another one of those interesting subjects where it's, it's, it's kind of, I guess, a little hazy uh, when you start to look into it. But, you know, it's, it really comes down to this whole idea of, you know, yes, they do want to teach all Cubans to read, but at the end of the day, for for a Cuban, what good is that if the only thing you can read is government propaganda? Um, and and yes, the healthcare is free, but unfortunately, it isn't always as good as they make it seem. And and even within Cuba, there's sort of these two tiers of healthcare. They they have even specific hospitals just for tourists that are very well kept and very well maintained. But unfortunately, and I know because I have you know, friends and family members who have, have told me personally that some of the healthcare conditions and in hospitals are so poor that even a pregnant woman about to give birth has to even bring her own sheets to the hospital. Uh, and she has to go and uh, use the bathroom in an outhouse. Uh, and, you know, if you want to get an operation, yeah, it's free, but then you have to go out and, and find all the equipment, even the needles and the gloves for the, the doctor to even perform the operation on you. Uh, and and un the other sort of unfortunate side of that is that the Cuban government takes a lot of their best physicians and doctors and actually exports them to other countries. And it's not just for humanitarian purposes, it's actually because they're making money off it. They're charging thousands of dollars a month for these doctors. And then, you know, they're turning around and paying these doctors a very, very low wage. Uh, you know, something that even by American standards, an American doctor would never take a salary like that, even if he were doing humanitarian work. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting topic. Um, but yes, you know, can we take even some of the smaller points of how to address healthcare in general uh, and try to be more, uh, you know, practice more preemptive medicine as opposed to trying to treat the disease after? Uh, sure. Uh, but again, I, I really think at the end of the day, it comes down to um, personal choice in a lot of ways. And are the people empowered to make the choice of whether they want to go down this path or not? So if you are going to teach me how to read, fantastic. But then let me read whatever I want. Uh, if you want to give me access to this great healthcare, then great. But let me choose whether or not I want to take. You know, there's some there's some people that want to be more holistic, for example. Uh, but you know, in in sort of the Cuban system is like they don't really care about that. They're going to give it to you because they know that in general, uh, you need to sacrifice your own personal choice or taste for the greater good of the pe people. Um, so it's it's a really delicate balance at the end of the day. Right. And uh, when it comes to education, I got the sense that you have these highly educated people who can study, you know, not everything, but a lot of different subjects, and then they graduate, and then what do they do with that? There's not, there's not like, necessarily the jobs or the opportunities to do anything with it, um, to have a job that you could have in the United States or another country with, you know, there's probably not much in terms of business degrees, but I talked to, like, computer scientists there, and it's like, they're doing computer science without access to the internet. And what good is that really um, in this day and age? Right, no, it's exactly right. It's like, you know, they, they do all this great job of, like I guess, say, training people, but then to what end? 
uh, I guess is the big question. Uh, because yeah, ideally in this country, if, if you're training in IT and doing all this great stuff, then maybe you want to work for a Google. Maybe you want to start your own company. Uh, but unfortunately, those, those opportunities just don't exist for the Cuban people right now. Right, right. Okay, well, um, thank you so much. It's, it's a really fascinating place, and I'm glad I got to go. Um, and I hope other people will go, but I hope that they go uh, not just to the resorts and go to actually learn something about the island and see it. And uh, it, it was just—it was far more fascinating than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm again, I'm I'm glad you had that experience. And and I do hope that if if anyone listening is planning to go and that that they do go more in that capacity, um, you know, that and and really just kind of take in. Uh, what what the Cubans go through every day. I think that's uh, that's definitely the way to go about it. Welcome back to Radio Motherboard. Jamie, what did you do today, and how did it make you feel, and what happened in the aftermath? Oh, it's like therapy. Um, I don't <laughs> think I fucked up. I think I made everyone in the company laugh, to be honest. Um, so someone who will remain unnamed, because I don't want to embarrass them, was inquiring about some type of like UPS package slip or something, something really just logistical and silly, and accidentally... Um, put the entire vice u.s office in the address line hundreds of people hundreds so, yeah. of yeah. people Probably like 500 people or so right <laughs> probably more because it's all the, well yeah between new york and l.a so oh and miami i guess so yeah about 500 people anyway the whole company including executives uh and because i'm like adamant about keeping my inbox like empty like every time i see a new email i have to click on it or do something because it'll just like overwhelming uh i responded right away not seeing the u.s office in the address line and this i said is right away by the way <laughs> like i saw this email come in on and i saw that she fucked up not jamie but the other person and immediately jamie responded it's like no yeah it was pretty bad so anyway i respond not knowing and i'm thinking like oh this poor person thinks i'm the wrong jamie that could help her with this slip um so i respond with the words wrong jamie uh, question mark and then the entire company proceeds to follow my direction and respond <laughs> with wrong or, eric wrong whatever wrong, wrong matt wrong yeah. tim wrong gina everybody so it was kind of hilarious and i had no idea what i did until my associate producer was like jamie do you realize what you did i was like no, what no and then i saw it and i thought it was hysterical and of course like no matter what, it could be 30 people, 50 people respond. People continue to respond. It's almost as if, like, you can't fight the urge to have that one moment where everyone sees you. And it was, it's kind of hysterical. It, well, at least it was kind of buried, though, by everybody who, you know, hopped on the bandwagon. Yeah. A, so I feel like we at least have this going for us. Um, I listened to an episode of Reply All, I guess, and they did... I like segment about this reply all phenomenon which is kind of appropriate and it was about some like massive company with like 40,000 people and the, the chain went on for like days and I think uh, last week there was one at Reuters which is like 30,000 people or something and it was like trending on Twitter because it was like Reuters reply all gate and like journalists can't help but talk about themselves on Twitter so they were talking about this but 
here at Vice, people knew that like what they were doing, you know, like it was a joke. It wasn't like, uh, I don't think you meant to send this to everyone or like everyone stop replying all like we weren't <laughs> getting that. We were getting like uh, smart asses yeah. making jokes. Has there been like a good investigation into like the best reply all chains? I know there are some legendary ones. BuzzFeed had a pretty legendary one. Not yeah. to BuzzFeed a shout or anything, but yeah, this kid. <laughs> not this to is, not either, though. <laughs> yeah, not to not, but um, this Just kid. The facts. This kid was running late to work, and he had no cold. Like, I mean, no. This kid was running late to work, and he had no hot water. So he emails his boss to be like, "Yo, I'm gonna be a couple minutes late." But he accidentally cc's like the entire BuzzFeed editorial staff, like like worldwide and then everyone takes to twitter and instagram and it's just like oh my god justin like are you okay call 911 like everyone like hounded this man and then he turned it into a blog post which is actually what brian anderson uh suggested i do but it just wasn't that funny yeah. it did peak my story peaked at one point at one point shane smith the ceo and founder of vice media responded and said def not no, wait, deaf wrong Shane, which I thought was amazing, and I was really tempted to respond, but I didn't, because I just didn't yeah. want to embarrass myself anymore. You bowed out gracefully. Interestingly, <laughs> I only got, like, maybe five or six of the responses, and then I was, like, pulled off the chain, but I th- guess it's still going, right? Yeah, I don't know. I guess certain people just continue to respond or may have transferred it or sent it, and then right. just continue. So to what I think on. is happening right now is there's, like, five or six different chains going on, which is, like, there's another... Working. Well, yeah, try. there's forking, which is, like, a really uh, interesting email phenomenon as well when you, like... Because I think with my friends, I have, like, a concert email thread, and it's now, like, 16 different email threads because, like, someone can't go to one concert, so they take themselves off, but then someone puts them back on or something, and it's just, like... I don't know, email is a mess, isn't it? Yeah. I so, say as I'm just talking because they're looking through their email. <laughs> yeah, I got pulled off this probably the same time you did. I'm still on it as of 5.45, and people keep responding, but to me it's almost as if, like... How I, many are we at now? What's the count? I don't even... Responses? Oh, oh, I have 82 items in one chain. 82 items, yeah. I was taken off just after... The majority of the people were taken off. However, um, it was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe that's your in. She got you got some FaceTime with Shane. I know. Yeah. I did get some. Fa- I did tweet Shane once, and he responded. What I was on a shoot say? in Florida, and we were with a very, very big Vice fan. And he stopped, and he said to me, "Shane Smith is one of my own personal Jesuses." And I said, "Oh, that's amazing." And then I tweeted Shane, and I told him, <laughs> and he favorited it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was a weird moment, yeah. but. I'm officially on the radar. Yeah. I was talking about Vice in Cuba with a few people. I think there were other tourists, and someone had something to say about him, which I like probably shouldn't repeat on here, but it was fine. It was fine. He was like, <laughs> I love the HBO show. Uh, I like really like that one old guy who like does a lot of them. Like, How did he manage to get on the show? And I was like, he founded the company. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> no like, big deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's how you get on the Vice show. You found the company. Or, like, are really talented and Or you have a clever thing to say on a reply all chain. That's what I was thinking. Or, like, you talk about things on podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) Are you you listening? So, next week, Shane Smith on the Motherboard (laughs) Podcast. Have you ever had an embarrassing reply all, Jason? Oh, yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about in this podcast. (laughs) I wanted to say, what is the worst thing that you've done in an office, like, email, 
thread or something like that. Not the worst thing, the most embarrassing thing. Yeah, not worst. That's what I meant. Yeah, like the most embarrassing thing, and you're like, oh, God, this is terrible. Brian, do you have any stories? Uh, I can't tell mine. (laughs) Okay. That's good. I, like, don't want to tell mine either. (laughs) But I mine's won't. not. I, mine's more for legal reasons. I think. Oh. I, uh, <laughs> Let's just cut this whole part out. No, is this a Syrian electronic army thing? No. Oh, that was a, that was embarrassing. I could talk about that one for sure. I mean, I felt bad about that, but I think everybody sort of, you know, empathized and you know knows or at least understood. So I so a few years ago I did a story about the Syrian electronic army and one of my sources was able to confirm the identity of one of these guys who at the time were doing really nasty stuff in addition to doing sort of like media circus stuff like this the, the SEA were the guys who hacked the onion and like the Associated Press's Twitter feed and they did those stunts but at the same time the other thing they were doing was sort of revealing the identities of people who were joining the uh, opposition to Assad so like putting like these students and young people in real danger because the Assad regime was coming around and and you know rounding up uh, the sort of dissenters. Um, so we did a story that kind of revealed who this guy was, and they, and it just basically caused office-wide misery for the next two days because, sure enough, I don't even know how much I can really talk about, um, but it's been a couple years. But, yeah, they so they hacked Vice. They did a big old DDoS attack, and they they did... What is that? So it's like a basically like a denial of service attack where you get you basically I think these days you usually get like a botnet to basically yeah. jam a server and overload it with requests so then it shuts down and it it yeah. basically can't handle the traffic. Right. So we normally like want a lot of traffic because it means lots of people are reading our stories, but in a DDO, DDoS attack, it's one that like millions of computers just ping one server and take it totally down and like kill it. Mm. And like those people are not real people. They're like thoughts so you don't want it it's bad and it's hard to prevent because normally you want people to go to your site so we had you know our team was aware that this was probably going to happen they waited a week and it just it was just like a it was just kind of a crappy time so i'd like to take this opportunity to apologize officially for jesse knight our fine chief technology officer who had to sit around the clock and make sure the Syrian electronic army didn't take us down. But, it, I mean, it was a good story, and I think everybody knew that it was probably worth doing, you know, that it was, yeah. you know, that you, it goes with the territory sometimes. People lash out when they don't like uh, your reporting, yeah. especially when it's I true. have another pretty good story, actually. Yeah. But I'll, it happened. Tell, I'll oh, tell mine ahead. real quick, oh, yeah, since you already got one story. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell mine quick. It's at an old job, and I'm normally very, very careful about what I copy-paste, because, you know, like, you start writing something and you copy-paste it, and you just like copy paste it into the URL tab or like into a chat or something. Well, I was like bitching to one of my coworkers about my boss and I like wrote half of it and then I like something else happened. So I was like, oh, let me just like, I cut it from that and I started typing something else. And then I tabbed over to like the main chat room with like my boss in it and I just like pasted it and like sent it to everyone. And it was just like, oh, how am I going to get my way out of this now? Because <laughs> I was just, like, calling him a jackass. Which, like, 
he was because he didn't believe in climate change or evolution, which <laughs> oh. was like not good. But anyways, that was extremely embarrassing. So what I was think the fallout? I, the fallout was I like made something up and I was just like, oh, I was mad about like you uh, like said something mean to about me at this meeting and i was not upset about like your general terribleness i was upset about this one thing and i like fucked up i just kind of like own the fact that like yeah i was talking to you about i was talking to about you to like my girlfriend but like i'm really sorry and <laughs> so you were honest it. i was sort semi-honest but I, like in truth <laughs> i was like talking about something he had like just done to like everyone so um whatever it it ended up fine but i think i'm very much more careful what i type this and is, what see, i cut is, and paste this is yeah. what cuba has to look forward to <laughs> <laughs> All this. yeah email etiquette mean? 101 yeah right no he's, that was a really interesting thing about cuba was like they don't have any of this like bullshit that they have to deal with like ever like there's no cecil the lion there's like no social media like norms there's no like facebook allowance that sounds so refreshing i know that's like a t- <laughs> No, I, I mean, that's something I asked Jose Luis, and I was like, are there things we can learn from them? Because, like, I went there, obviously, having the internet in my life all the time, but I went there and had a three-week vacation from the internet. I was still working, but I got on the internet maybe, like, three times, and I barely checked my email. And I came back, and I literally felt like I could drink coffee again. Like, I couldn't drink coffee for two years because it stressed me out and, like, made me, like, have panic attacks. And just being there and, like, withdrawn from the rest of the world, like, let me drink coffee again, like, because I was so not stressed, you know? You think it's, I like, think and you and you think, I'm like, I'm positive, plug, I'm positive it's unplugging and, that, like, just, it let my brain, like, reset itself, you know? I mean, yeah, I that's think. a real, I mean, it, it is also, you know, it's, like, a very you know, privileged thing to be able to do these like digital detox camps and things like it means we have all this stuff, right? But you're totally right. Whenever I have an excuse or the, or the time or the means really, to be honest, you know, like as journalists, we're really on call a lot of the time. So whenever we can say like, okay, even for 48 hours, just like no internet, no nothing. God, it makes such a difference. I went out on a date recently and we both left our phones at home. I swear to God, I did. Accident or? No, on purpose. I was like, all right, let's just like not, like I'll meet you here at this time. There might be a 15 minute window where I'm late, but uh, I'll be there. And then I'm just not bringing a smartphone. And we did it and it was awesome. It definitely puts a lot of like more stress on conversation. And you're not constantly stimulated, so you don't always have new things to just pop into the conversation. But it was great. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really interesting. So I tried to do for a while. Again, it didn't last that long because just the the forces that demand that we that demand our attention and our time or our leisure or whatever are powerful enough that they overrode it. But I tried to do a like a full on like no screen day once a week, like every Saturday or Sunday, just like no phone, no TV, no nothing. You could read books, you could read, and like I sort of felt like exactly what you're talking about jason the the screws loosen just a little bit just to where it's like pleasant you know right i like found myself having like original thought again which was nice i was like oh i should write about this or i should read this book or i should do this and like meanwhile i wouldn't leave myself alone with my thoughts for that long like i would probably be like oh my god what's happening on twitter what's happening on facebook like if i had an idle moment that's kind of like what i do and that's what a lot of people do. They just check their phones. They're like, oh, who can I text? Who can I, like, 
chat Being with. alone, like, freaks people out yeah. way more yeah. now, I think, than before. You know what that makes me think about, too? It's like everyone talks about, like, whether or not Wi-Fi or just constantly being surrounded by certain radio waves could be harmful to our health. I wonder if Cuba could be, like, the control group. And they could be, like, a whole community of people that, like, haven't been exposed to God knows what. And then when all of our brains explode, yeah. we'll be the only... <laughs> well, so there's a whole community of people. They're called electro... I forget. Uh, electrosensitives. And they moved to Green Bank, West Virginia, which is where the um, this right. giant that satellite patch. is. Yeah. yeah. And there's no cell phone service there. There's, like, no Wi-Fi, nothing like that. Um, and my old roommate and very good friend, Michael Gaynor of Washingtonian magazine went there and like lived there for like 10 days or so and kind of talked to these electrosensitives and did a very good story a few weeks, a few months ago. Um, so you should check that out. It's on Washingtonian.com. I forget what the title of the article is, but it's just like Google electrosensitives, West Green Bank, West Virginia. Michael wow. Gaynor. <laughs> I was. I mean, no, it was. A, it was a great story. Plug like, complete. it was a really good story. Yeah. No, it sounds fascinating. I wish yeah. we'd done that story. Yeah. Jamie, do you want to tell us your story real quick, and then actually, we'll get out of here? Or is it? It's not that great, but it just goes to the point of it actually helped me get onto another executive's radar at the former company I worked on. But it was a huge fuck up. Um, I used to work for a large sports media giant that starts with the letter E. Um, and at the time I was working for one of the senior vice presidents and I was really close to the assistant to the president of the company. And so we would periodically help them schedule meetings and we'd be on email chains with everybody. And every once in a while she would reply to just me and we'd make a joke or we'd like take things offline or kind of just discuss it amongst ourselves. And it was like a Monday morning and I was really hungover and uh, I responded to her. We were just like chatting up about like some scheduling like mess up, and I was like, "I'm hungover as fuck with like ten U's." <laughs> and I replied all, and it went to the president of the company, and he actually was pretty funny about it and responded and was just like, <laughs> "He was like, are you okay?" And I was <laughs> like, "I'm fine." And I had no, when I saw an email from him directly, I felt like insane. And then after that, he knew who I was, so it was like kind of cool. <laughs> Well, like, so the moral sorry. of the story is reply all. I yeah, think, I guess. Right? Yeah, I mean, maybe yeah. in certain uh, professional environments, why not? But yeah, that could have been bad. Yeah. It's weird to think that, like, at all times, that there is this line of communication that is just like it's sitting there idle. But and it, people occasionally fuck up and use it. But anytime we want to, we could just broadcast our thoughts directly to the CEO, to the entire company. We could say, you could put whatever we wanted in that sub. I mean, maybe you only get one shot, but it's, <laughs> it's just funny that it doesn't happen more often, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's really interesting, like you said, uh, Cuba has this to look forward to. And I think, I just keep thinking it's like a cliche, but it's like, pandora's box in so many ways like once it's open you cannot close it and the people of cuba deserve to be connected and they deserve to be part of like the international community in that way but it's like so nice to not have to worry about like keeping up six conversations with six different people and like splitting your attention in a million different ways and like worrying about all this stuff and it's nice to just kind of be there and be like hey how are you doing the person i'm standing in front of like it's nice here right now and there's like you just have a conversation and that is a very forgotten thing i think right now and it's like oh i don't have to worry about what i'm gonna send in this email or like what's happening in this chat or i'm not gonna accidentally 
like tweet something and have my life ruined because I like a dick pic. Yeah, like a dick pic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna like. You How know. does that happen though? How do people accidentally do that? Sorry, a tangent. That happens but. all the time. I think it's like file names oh. are. I don't. I had never done it. I. I just. I'm careful. (laughs) (laughs) Encrypted. Encryption. No, it's, it's, I I mean, do whatever you want. I think, I think people can do whatever they want, but I just don't take them, you know, it's like not necessary, but that's the easiest, that's the easiest way. But you know, like our phones are shitty at naming files. It's just like a string of numbers. So you just like click some numbers in your computer once you upload it. And then it's like, oh, I meant to send a picture of a puppy, but it's like actually my dick sorry but like not sorry because (laughs) yeah i wonder like what percentage are really accidents probably low probably more yeah yeah Uh, accidents happen though like i mean when was the last time you accidentally sent a picture to somebody like a picture like i've accidentally texted people like you know ass press how about like yeah like butt dialing i don't i didn't do it very much but i just got a different phone and it happened the other day and i called like someone (laughs) i called this girl that i got i got her number like at a bar in college and i literally never called or talked to her again and i left a 16 minute voicemail (laughs) it's just like okay just years later yeah Yeah. like like seven years later you know it's it was literally girl pink dress i don't even know oh my god that's awesome. I was very drunk that night. I remember that night because I remember talking to her, and then I was like, uh, I should text this person, but I didn't. <laughs> but I called her seven years later for 16 minutes. Did she? And she never called you back? Nope. Wow. Well, misconnection. Maybe she'll hear this. Maybe, yeah. and she'll hear that you really did want to get in touch. Jason Kevler, girl in pink dress, if you're out there. <laughs> You can reach him at jason.kebler at vice.com. What's your Twitter handle? You can It's at Jason underscore Kebler. That's K O E B L E R. And yeah, if you deleted my number, it's <laughs> I've been on my number several times on this program, but it's 301 412 7324. Anyone else? Anyone uh, else who wants to, too, right? Like anyone you're else single like, right now? Please don't call me. Please don't call me, but you can text me. Text me uh, your worst, your most embarrassing work fuck up or you can email that to us uh, at editor at motherboard.tv. Um, Brian's number is... Mm-hmm. Just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> off the top of my head. We should put that out on Twitter, actually, Motherboard's Twitter. Get everybody to kind of send their most embarrassing email stories. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that's what I was doing. That's that's what this... That's what I... That's why <laughs> well, good, I said I, that. good idea, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> my bad. No, really Anyways, thank you very much, story. Jamie and Brian, for joining us. Thanks, Jose Luis Martinez of the Foundation for Human Rights Cuba. And thank Cuba for providing thanks so much Cuba content. for letting me go there. Uh, thank you, Cuba. To enjoy my mom it while it lasts for being born to a Cuban person and giving me interest in going there. And thank you. All right, you're getting the hook. Thank you, John Northcraft, for finding this microphone because someone stole ours. Dun dun dun. Who stole our microphone? Please give it back. Goodbye. <laughs>